Shepherds gaze in wonder While angel voices sing This night of night has come
Good morning. For, would you please stand for a responsive reading? This morning we will look at the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. You will find that on uh, page 692 in the Pew Bible. 692 for Isaiah, chapter 9. We will read through verses 1 through 7. I'll begin with the first congregation, the even number. All right. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In early times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephetali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There, there will be no end of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Amen. Please be seated. Here we have uh, the prophet Isaiah writing approximately 700 B.C. or so. This is at a time way before Jesus is going to to be born. So you could see where he is quite a prophet. I wonder if he could see in the future as to this baby being born in a manger or God just gave him this revelation to kind of guide uh, his people Israel. Begins by talking about the uh, tumultuous times that are going to come upon the northern kingdoms of Israel. Zebulun, Nephetali, when the Assyrian uh, army will come in and take them captive, basically destroying them and assimilating them into the Assyrian culture, losing their uh, Israelite identity. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who, will, who live in a dark land, the, land, the light will shine on them. We read back in Isaiah's uh, prophecy in chapter 6 how God will uh, cover their eyes and, and deafen them to hear God's voice. But, uh, so these people will be walking in darkness. I could imagine if you were a true Israelite, one who wanted to worship your God, and all of a sudden this conquering army takes you into their captivity <coughs> and totally eliminates your identity, you would be certainly in a dark land. You would be walking in darkness, wondering what's going on, knowing that you have been 
basically dead to the things of God. And all of a sudden, now there's going to be this great light that comes in and illuminates and shows you who this God is in its truest form. And we can read the same verses that Matthew uses in his gospel to reveal that this infant child that is born, miraculous birth in a manger, is that light that has come into the world that will shine upon them. Here in verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. With a nation that was once one Israel, under 12 tribes, under one king, that was the nation. They divided themselves. They separated. The north was lost. The south stood somewhat in, in God's presence, having the temple in, the, in their jurisdiction, in their land. How will this nation be multiplied? They didn't multiply themselves going forth, sharing the news of this, God, uh, this great living God that, wor- that they worshipped with others. But yet, it seems that through this child, this nation will multiply. And look around the world today, how far the influence of this one child has been. Now that those who enter into that kingdom of this child, who grow in the knowledge of him, will find that they are in the presence of gladness. And that harvesting, the harvest, the ingathering, the bringing together of a nation and the people and those throughout the world. In the resurrection, in entering into Christ. Then, of course, uh, with verse 6, we read this on so many of our Christmas cards. uh, For unto us a child will uh, be born, a son is given. God the Father says, take my son. I'm sending him to you for the very purpose of dying, going to the cross, and rising again. That in that resurrection and in that glorification of the Son that we enter into, the, into his kingdom and we will be calling him a wonderful counselor, mighty God. I'll tell you, when you go to a, a different church on, on uh, Christmas Eve just to hear the music, they use the word and it, it, it just grates against, it's like fingers on a chalkboard. Instead of saying mighty God, they go, hero God. I kind of get the image of, of Captain America and all these Marvel, char- Marvel characters, you know, the heroes. I, I just doesn't mighty God, the one who has created all, the one through his love for his people gave his son. That's the one in whom we want to worship. And this child, though he's an infant in a manger, he's still eternal father. And he brings us peace a peace that surpasses all understanding. So there will be no end to the increase of his government, nor to his peace. And that government, we kind of think of just like the people who we elect into office, but his government is his kingdom, his jurisdiction. And that will will not end. It will grow eternally, constantly, forever. And he will sit upon the throne of David and over his kingdom because that kingdom that was divided, that was once won under David, that divided, that will be conquered. 
He will establish it again once for all, and he will fulfill the prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we look upon this time now of great rejoicing in that God sends his son, this little child, into the manger, born of a virgin. How does this all happen? But God is supernatural. He can do it, and he has done it, and he is faithful to what he has prophesied. Thank you. I would agree with Pastor Steve about the comment, uh, hero God. That seems a bit strange. I think the only place I could say that I would see it fair is on a T-shirt that I have. I actually have a T-shirt of uh, Jesus sitting among the Marvel superheroes. And uh, there he, sees, he says, let me tell you how I saved the world. You know, So that would be the only place I would see that uh, quote and feel comfortable with it. Um, but I surely agree. Um, so being that we're in this beautiful kingdom, Right? We celebrate the, the child that was given to us to bring us into this kingdom. Um, I've made it my, uh, my goal this season to really grow in a gratitude for what the Son has provided, this kingdom, this government, if you will, and to become a bit more responsible. And my goal, again, we're, we're very joyous around this season, and I never want to take that away from us. But I also want to compel us to move forward with a greater gratitude and a greater responsibility. So that's what I've been doing this entire, uh, as I've been going through Advent, if you will, um, again, I find Advent to be a very beautiful thing. No, I'm not a Catholic, but I do believe Advent to be the first, those four weeks leading up to Christmas to be something that we could observe. And we can ask ourselves, you know, am I truly possessing that which that child re- represents? Am I, am I truly grateful for all that that child represents? And as his kingdom, as his government, am I walking responsibly? Again, we talk a lot about government and responsible government in our day and age, and it seems everybody's frustrated about that. So then let's be the responsible government of our king, of our king and the kingdom that we represent. Amen? Amen? All right, good. Okay, so I'm going to bring us into a, a little bit about Leviticus. Surprise. Um, we're going to th- continue our thinking through Scripture this morning. And uh, what I've been doing to uh, get a better understanding of the details of Leviticus is I've been reading through different parshots by different rabbis and rabbinical teachers um, in regards to what they would say um, these details are about. So what we're finishing today, Leviticus 9 through Leviticus 11, is actually Parshat Shemini. Yes, Parshat Shemini. And uh, next week's is even more complicated to pronounce. Um, so Parshat Shemini, is a, it's a, a Parshat of awe. One thing it should cause you to do is exactly what that child being given, given to us should do, is cause you to have a sense of awe. And, and see God's sovereignty, see him who he, for who he is. And uh, ultimately it concludes with responsibility. It concludes with the priest's responsibility in Leviticus chapter 11. So my goal this morning is to impress a lot of those Levitical details upon us. Not that we're the Levitical priesthood, but we are the priesthood that carries forth the kingdom of the Son that we celebrate during this season. So I do believe that if we take a look at some of the details here in Leviticus chapters 9 through 11, we can gain more of an understanding as to how we can be a grateful and a responsible priesthood or government, if you will. So I want to turn over to Leviticus chapter 10. And last week we ended by reading, uh, we, last week we preached, I, I had preached, you didn't preach, I preached. Um, last week I preached about, uh, about Abihu, Nadab and Abihu and their disobedience, their disregard for the presence of God. And I had given you a couple things out of the Parshat uh, that they had shared, the rabbis had shared, about why this 
this event, this, unev- this um, immediate death happened to Nadab and Abihu. And if you remember, a lot of it was a lack of regard for God, a lack of regard for what God had said, the commandment, the way he wanted them to worship. And uh, some had made other theories about what possibly was wrong with um, Nadab and Abihu's worship. Everything from pride to arrogance to uh, leaning upon their own understanding. The many sins that we see in the world today. The many sins that would lead us away from being a grateful and responsible priesthood. Exactly what happened to them. So at the end of that, in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, we read an interesting verse. I'm going to be reading from the King James Version as I have my notes in my Bible here. Leviticus 10, verses 3 through 4. After uh, they die before the Lord, it says this. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is that which the Lord has spoken, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near to me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Or as some translations say, and Aaron was silent. And that would be the very reason why I started our service this morning with a moment of silence. You see, the minute they see God move, the minute they see his presence and him taking judgment upon their lack of regard, it causes Aaron, their father, to completely be silent and still. Why? Because what does silence do? When we sat there in silence, it begins to, it helps you see, and, and it actually, maybe I'll just say it like that, helps you see clearly. Yes, silence helps you see clearly. Matter of fact, one of the rabbis had said this, all of my life I have seen sages grow in their faith. However, in all the practices I have found nothing better for a sage than silence. And that, again, is a, is a beautiful thing, that we can sit in silence, we can set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We can, as the psalmist says, or the proverb, proverbial wisdom says, be still and know that I am God. So, again, that is our goal, is to come into this place. You see, everything was done for a reason this morning. We have come into this place, gathered in his name, to worship him. Right, and then let's forget about ourselves. I thought that was a very, I was singing that to myself this morning as I was getting ready. So I said, you know, let me help the people of God this week get ready as well. And uh, let's sing that song and remember why we gather in this place. Prayerfully, we're all in agreement that this mysterious tragedy we see in Leviticus 10 between Nadab and Abihu and the correlation to what it means for us should cause us to have a, a greater responsibility, to have more of a regard for God's presence, a greater regard for God's presence. The rabbis point out how if you thought that the Nadab and Abihu thing was mysterious, that God just struck them dead, how about the response that Moses offers Aaron here? The rabbis say that this is a rather mysterious response. You turn to a man that's grieving, his two sons were just struck down by God, and you say to him, God has said he will be sanctified among those who are near to him, and before the entire nation he shall be glorified. And obviously Aaron holds his peace. Some would say that this is a cross-reference to what God had said during the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 29, verse 43, that God said, I will be glorified in these people. So the priesthood, specifically the Levitical priests, they had a responsibility to uphold the sanctity of God and to uphold the glory of God. That was their job. Again, I would impress upon us, that's our job as well. So I had to go ahead and look up the word sanctity. I uh, was like, I use the word a lot. I'm not quite sure I know what the definition of the word is. And what it basically means is that which of of ultimate importance, right? Sanctity is when God is sanctified in your sight, it's God being shown to be the most important thing in your sight. 
And then glory, as I made mention of earlier, uh, glory means to the things of weight, right? The weighty things. The Greek word there is doxa for glory, and it means to be uh, weighty. So when we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about the most important thing, the sanctity of God, right? That he would be the most important thing. And that's what God's saying here. Nadab and Abihu, they forgot that. that the most important thing needs to be the sanctity of God, that he is first and foremost. And obviously he had commanded them, this is the way you're to do worship. And they kind of just went about it their own way. And then glory, that these things should be the weighty things in, that God would be glorified, that he would be the weighty thing in their experience of life. He would be that which adds weight to their experience of life. That's why we were silent this morning, because my goal was to challenge us to, to see that sanctity, to ask yourself, you know, is God give, being given that a preeminence in my life? Is he the first and foremost? Am I truly coming into this place, setting my eyes on him, the author and finisher of my faith, and forgetting about myself so that I may grow in the things that God has told me to grow in? Because that's where we'll see the glory. If we do the sanctity part, we mark it out, we'll see the glory of God in our lives, in our world. One of the rabbis had said in regards to this death, because again, for me, it was, it's troubling, and I know the rabbis are very troubled that God would just strike these two men dead right there after their disobedience. Obviously, I know the whole story, you know, Genesis to Revelation, so I understand how important worship really was to God. So I understand, I have no problem with God striking Nadab and Abihu down because it seems to be that's how God wanted to be very clear in his worship. He wanted it to be very important. So what the rabbis had pointed out was if you, if you find this to be problematic, that God had striked down Nadab and Abihu, you have to understand why this was being done to sanctify God's name. One of the rabbis had remarked, your sons, what Moses essentially turns to uh, Aaron and says, if we were to sum up all of this sentence here about sanctifying glory, he says, your sons died a death that will sanctify God's name. Because that was the goal of the priesthood, to represent God. So now Moses turns to Aaron and he says, basically to sum up the whole point, your sons died because of what's truly important. Your sons disregarded God's worship, disregarded God, and now they have been struck down to declare God's sanctity, to declare that he is the most important thing. And uh, that's, again, that's the picture that we're supposed to be getting from Nadab and Abihu. I want to kind of move us past that. But uh, another thing about silence, now that I mentioned that, if you think about it, the minute Moses said that to him, Moses turns to Aaron, and now to sum up that whole sentence there in 3 through 4, he turns to him and he says, your sons died so that God might be rightly sanctified and glorified. What should that now it's in the next thing it says is Aaron was silent. Right? Right after he said that, Aaron was silent. So that should get you thinking. Why? Why would he be silent? What was he doing in that very moment? I imagine silence causes introspection. He began to look in and of himself. Did I teach my children right? Did I teach them the right aspects of the priesthood? Did I instill upon instill in them how important these things are? I imagine Aaron began to think like that. Then you have a self-examination. Am I walking worthy of this? Am I doing this right? Obviously, Aaron wouldn't want to go into the, the temple and get struck down. So you would imagine looking at what happened to his sons, examining himself, he's going to ask himself, you know, am I doing this appropriately as well? Am I, am I wrongly touching the things of God in ways that would not glorify him? And then, of course, growth, right? That moment of silence probably caused Aaron to say, next time. Next time I'm going to do this a bit better. I'm going to be a bit more responsible in whether it's teaching my sons or teaching those that are going to come into the, uh, the priesthood. I'm going to be a bit more responsible in teaching them 
how to do that. So for me, that silence aspect caused three things, introspection, self-examination, and spiritual growth. Moving us forward into Leviticus chapter 10, next verse I want to mark out here is verses 8 through 11. So now they, now that God has, he's making it very clear that this priesthood has been given to uphold the sanctity and the glory of God. He's struck these men dead, and now it says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, verse 8, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, unless you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout all your generations, that you may put a difference between holy and unholy, and between clean and unclean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So, as I had made mention of last week, it's interesting that right after the Nadab and Abihu passage, the first commandment is not to use strong drink, not to be drunk and enter into the sanctuary of God, enter into the tabernacle of God. Many have said that the sin of Nadab and Abihu could have been that they lacked sober service, that they were indeed drunk entering into the temple of God. Something that's interesting and uh, about ancient culture is that most of the ancient cultures believed that drinking a little bit or doing some sort of intoxicating drug was a way to have a spiritual experience. Most ancient cultures believed that. And as I began to think through this detail here, I thought that this brings us into something very interesting, is that we as the church, the gratitude and the responsibility that we should definitely be increasing in is spirituality, is that we actually have true spirituality that has been given to us through what God had provided to the Hebrew people in the Old Covenant. He gave them true spirituality in contrast to worshiping Asherah poles and the Baals and all the false gods. And he gave them true spirituality, and then he fulfilled everything that that they were hoping for in their spirituality through Jesus Christ. So we, the church, we not only have the truth of God, which he gave to the Hebrews, we actually have the fulfillment of everything that that truth of God had pointed to. That's again, that's why we read, he has given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. So we have true spirituality. Again, the the Hebrew people understood that. They would look at the, the people worshiping the Baals and were doing all sorts of strange things to muster up a spirituality, to get themselves excited. You know, I always think of uh, Elijah and the Baal worshipers. You know, that was a very active event. It wasn't just a very calm preacher speaking to the people sitting in the the pews. It was a, you know, these men were aggravated, were agitated. I imagine they used to, that's why you see uh, the ancients would cut themselves, because when you cut yourself, what you would be doing is giving yourself some sort of feeling that you'd be mustering up your own spirituality, if you will. And uh, unfortunately in the church today, you know, I don't want to go too far into that, that's a common theme. People worshiping in churches this morning, doing everything they can to give themselves a feeling or an experience with God. We are to be the people that shake our heads at that. We are not to be, again, the, the problem with the Christian church lately is we've developed that sentiment. I, I talk to people, I say, what do you do? You going to church tomorrow? What, what are you looking forward to? Oh, the worship. You know, the worship's great. They don't learn anything. They just go and they sing and they muster up a really good feeling about God and then they leave. And it dissipates. And they go back next week trying to do the same thing. That's pagan. That's what the pagans did. That's why I believe right here what God's saying right after this sin of Nadab and Abihu is don't be like those people. We're going to set a difference, right? He says, verse 10, that you may put a difference between the holy and unholy. The pagan people didn't understand that. They would, their entire lives were caught up in anxiety, were caught up in 
intoxication, if you will, in trying to lean upon, in everything that they did, they would lean upon their own understanding to have an experience in, with God or have an experience with the gods. In contrast to that, Judaism actually uh, pushes an earthly encounter, right? Everything, when, remember when Moses comes before the burning bush, take off your shoes. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you to a holy place. He says, where you are standing is a holy place because God is there. Kind of like how we celebrate the new covenant. One thing I love about our church is we don't celebrate that we're going to go somewhere. No, he's here. He's present with us. It's a very earthly encounter with God, not something we need to muster up and give ourselves a a false spirituality or a false uh, zeal um, for things that that are beyond. That's uh, what I had said in my book, Wicked. I explained this as conceptual spirituality, that the Hebrew people, rather than these uh, spiritual experiences, doing everything they can to bring on a spiritual experience or to be obsessed with another world, they wanted God to be with them. They wanted God's presence in their lives. That's why they have moments of silence, so that they could examine and truly appreciate what they have rather than mustering up a bunch of energy about things that they were hoping for. One of the rabbis had said that uh, Judaism was given as a faith to keep God's people's feet firmly planted on the ground. I thought that to be a beautiful reality. So that's, that's my gratitude and my responsibility with my faith is that God would keep me planted on the ground, that I would not be so caught up in whatever it is our society wants us to be caught up in or developing my own theories of things to be caught up in, but instead taking moments of silence, keeping my feet firmly planted on the ground and living with a gratitude and a responsibility that Nadab and Abihu unfortunately missed. Didn't catch that point. So then we move into, uh, you continue going through the rest of this uh, parshat here into Leviticus chapter 11. You read a lot of the do's and don'ts, right? Don't eat these type of foods. Don't eat these type of birds. Don't, you know, a whole bunch of things that you're not supposed to do. And then in verse 47, the last verse of the chapter, it says this, to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may, be not, may not be eaten. And again, that same correlation there from Leviticus 10, verse 10. Right, Leviticus 10, verse 10. So the whole goal, a lot of times when I had first become a Christian, you would imagine I have tattoos, so I've always had to hear the Levitical laws on tattoos. I've, I've heard everything about foods you're not supposed to eat, you know, everything you can think of. Um, and I'd always wonder, you know, why did they have all these strange laws? Now, I know some that would teach today that uh, many of the dietary laws were actually given because these people had, a, uh, had more intelligence, if you will, in regards to health and things like that. I, I might question that. Um, some things, right? I mean, uh, abstaining from pork, for example, right? Abstaining from pork, they say pork has some negative qualities to, for your health. So they would say that these people had been given wisdom to stay away from eating pork. The scripture doesn't say that. What the scripture says is they were given to make a difference. Make a difference about what? Not that these people, these people have good health, health policies in their community. No, it was to make a difference between what the pagans were doing. The pagans gave no regard to God, gave no regard to the things they ate. They did whatever they wanted. And what God is seeking to do through his people is to create a people that will make a difference, that will be different and will make a difference. And that's why he gives them these kosher laws, if you will. He, he gives them a bunch of kosher laws to set a distinction between them and the other people. So prayerfully, we're not here caught up in uh, what foods we can eat, what birds we can't eat, etc. What I had written in my notes in regards to Leviticus chapter 11 is, this is for the immature. 
right? When a child gets brought up in a home, you tell them what they're not allowed to do, and they're just not allowed to do it. It doesn't matter that, you know, well, this bird looks like it will taste better. It doesn't matter. You're not supposed to do this. That's what God says to his people in an immature state. You're not supposed to do this. But I want to preach to us, and I want to end talking to us a little bit about maturity this morning, that we do need to be a people that are grateful. We need to recognize that Jesus Christ came to abolish this Levitical law so that it wouldn't be what we eat and what we don't eat that would make us different. It wouldn't be what we wear or the way we cut our, whether we cut our flesh for the dead or not that would make us different. But again, Jesus tells us, and I'm going to show you here in a moment, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to be different by. We're not supposed to read these Levitical laws and obsess about, because again, it's very easy for me to say, you know what makes me different than the world? That I don't eat pork, right? That, that would be a very simple uh, thing to do. Or that I don't eat the things that are listed in Leviticus chapters 10 through 11. I don't do those things. That's what, and that's the way that I, many, unfortunately, believe they're going to see the change in this world. is by the things they don't do, such as what they eat, drink, or consume, or whatever it might be, that that's going to be the way we see change in our world. That is a very immature message. Very immature message. This is given to a very immature priesthood. That's what we're reading about. So I want to take us to the New Testament and bring us into some passages here. The first one I want to take us to is 1 Corinthians 16. You know, the church of Corinth was a pretty rough crowd. They seemed to lean upon their own understanding in almost everything. Right? You go to, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you read all the problems in the whole letter. It's Literally, they were going back to leaning upon their own understanding. They were saved by Jesus, yet they're arguing about baptism. They're arguing about practices. They're arguing about... Um, the resurrection of the dead. They're arguing about all these different things. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter, again, compelling them. You need to be a people of maturity. You're supposed to be the church, making known the manifold wisdom of God. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, at the end of the entire letter, verse 13 is where I want us to start. After saying all these things, he says, Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, that you know the house of Stephanus, that is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit yourselves to such things and to everyone that helps with us and labors. So you see the point there. At the end of this entire letter, he compels them to watch. Now, he's not saying watch for, you know, um, the future, or Jesus to come out of the sky. Watch is that same thing as be silent. Be still and know that I am God. Watch. Be diligent. Have an appreciation. Have a gratitude for the things that you're being given. Right? The church here in Corinth is being given a lot. Have a gratitude. Watch those things. Stand fast. Act like men. Or mine says quit like men. Uh, Be strong. Let all things be done with charity. There's your verse. Let all things be done with charity. And then he compels them in the next two verses to be like these churches that seem to be getting it right. The first fruits. Remember the first fruits, that church in Achaia at Stephanus' house. They've addicted themselves to ministry. Be like them. Love them. Any man you see doing that, love them. That's submit yourselves to them and to everyone that helps and labors. So when you see them doing good, join them in their work. Matter of fact, this week, I, uh, in thinking about the saturation effort. Right? This, is, this would be one of those things that watch. Right, We're going to watch our island. We're going to be responsible for our island. We're going to stand fast in our faith. We're going to make sure that we, um, you know, we, we're strong. 
And we're going to do this with love and charity. We're going to go out and make known the manifold wisdom of God. But I began to think, and I said, wow, that compels us to a great responsibility, right? To, to saturate Long Island, to... Um, what I began to think about was, Shane Claiborne says it best. He says, when you want to find where God's at work, look to see where God's at work. And with saturate, I see it. I see they're already at work. They're, they would be the fulfillment of this verses 15 through 16 for me. Men that are laboring, men that are already at work, putting together something. So here I, we begin to ponder a new year at Blue Point, and I say, well, we could form our own evangelism group, right? We could start doing our own thing. But then I realized that this passage should remind us, let's get involved where God's already at work. Let's have regard for others that are beginning the work, and let's join them in that effort. So again, that's a mature church, because the immature church, the immature priesthood, wants to be the only priesthood, the only church. The next text I wanted to take us to to preach about maturity is Romans 14. Again, and I'm, I'm going, my goal in all of this is I'm going to lead us to what is it that we should be doing? We're not, we're not going to be the people that are going to make a difference by being different in the things that we eat and the things that we wear, the outward things. Scripture is going to tell us what we need to be different in. So here in Romans 14, verses 10 through 14, we read this. Why do you judge your brother? Why are you set against your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as long as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, each one of us, shall give account of himself to God. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but judge rather this, that no man puts a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Talk about the hidden verse in the Bible. So as I was reading, you would imagine reading Leviticus chapters 10 through 11 and reading all this clean and unclean stuff, this passage popped up. And I said, because this passage is saying, and I actually had this talk with somebody recently, they began to ask me, you know, what things do you say are unclean? I said, well, scripturally speaking, it says everything is clean. So what therefore is unclean? Well, there has to be something that is unclean. And it's, it's the life, I'll tell you right now what the unclean thing is. It's the life walking without the proper garment. It's your life outside of Christ that is unclean. When you come into Christ, you are clean. All things are pure. All things are good. Now the goal needs to be, are we walking in line with what makes us different? That's the key. What is it that's going to make us different? It's not abstaining from things that are clean or unclean. And I'll conclude with this point. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells us the goal of our instruction. He gets right down to it. The goal of our instruction is this. You might say, if you're going to be different and make a difference, do this. Love from a pure heart, maintain a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, the good conscience brings you, should bring you to Romans 14. And that's where individually we need to be a mature people. And we need to ask ourselves, in my life, as we're moving into this beautiful season of celebrating the sun in us, in my life, where are the areas that I need to grow and gain a better gratitude, if you will, for loving from a pure heart? Maybe having love for somebody that it's not easy to love. Where can I grow in that area? To love them from a pure heart, a heart like God loved me where I was a sinner at odds with God, and yet he loved me and bestowed blessings upon me. Where do we need to become or grow in that area? 
Where do we need to grow in regards to a good conscience? What are the things that compel you in regards to your conscience toward God and toward man? And then, of course, a sincere faith, a faith that is built upon knowledge. We know the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 says that that generation, speaking about that generation, that they had a zeal for God, but it was not based upon knowledge. You would see that the maturity aspect of that would compel us to knowledge. So my goal this morning in ending this Parshat Shemini is to impress upon us that we are in charge of the sanctity and the glory of God. As a responsible, mature priesthood, we are those that are in charge of that. There's so many verses that allude to that point. Ephesians 3.10 says that the church has been given to make known the manifold wisdom of God. That manifold wisdom of God is exactly that. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We thank you for the story of the Levitical priests, that we might examine that story and understand what an immature priesthood would look like, Lord. A priesthood that fails to have gratitude and responsibility. But Lord, we know that you have called us to be that priesthood, to be that holy nation, to be that peculiar people, Lord, that are set apart from the world, not by external ordinances and teaching and things, Lord, but instead by the inward realities of love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you truly have given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. Compel us as we look toward the celebration of you incarnating yourself into this world, as we look toward the new year. Compel us, Lord, to live responsibly in those details. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward, and we will collect our missionary offering.